Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Concord Matters. Uh, I'm your host this week, Pastor Joshua Shearer, Senior Pastor at Our Savior Lutheran Church, coming from you here up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, about my once a month time to bring you uh, the Lutheran teachings from our Lutheran confessions, as Concord Matters is the show that just goes through our book of Concord, discussing the doctrine of the Lutheran Church, and especially finding out, man, this stuff isn't stuffy. This stuff is actually very practical and very much concerned about the well-being of your soul. And so we continue on today. We're in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We spent months and months covering how man is righteous before God, and yet now we're into the church. And yet today's discussion, we'll talk a little bit more about how man is righteous before God. See, that's what Lutherans are always concerned about. So... With me to join me on this, on this today, uh, I have uh, Pastor Marcus Bakey here with me in Cheyenne. He's an associate pastor here at Our Savior as well, so so welcome, Pastor Bakey. Thank you. Good to be on the program again. And over the phones, we have Pastor Mike Grevy, who is pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois, also a frequent guest. Uh, pastor Grevy, welcome. Pastor Shearer, good to be with you again, and thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, all right, so uh, we're, we're looking at the Apology, Articles 7 and 8. They combine the two on the Church and the Apology. Uh, they'll make note of it later that they're moving into the Article 8 stuff. Uh, but <clears throat> here we are discussing ceremonies and the unity of the Church. And so in the previous paragraphs covered last week, we learn about, for the true unity of the Church, universal ceremonies are not required. This is the Lutheran Confession. Of course, the Roman Catholic Confession is that universal ceremonies must be observed. Okay, But Lutherans say, no, for true unity, those universal ceremonies are not required. But then they say something beautiful. They say, but for the sake of peace, we can keep them. And then it even extols them as a good thing because they teach discipline and they train people, both young and old. So the problem they're really trying to address here is the problem of how the Roman Catholic Church had said that the Roman Catholic traditions and rites and so forth, universal ceremonies as they call them, are being necessary to be righteous before God. And of course, there you have it. The idea that you have to have these things in order to be saved, uh, to be righteous before God. So let's get into this. We're in paragraph 36. And I'll read paragraph 36 and 37 here, and then we will get into our discussion today. The meaning is this. Righteousness of the heart is a spiritual matter, a matter of enlivening hearts. Clearly, human traditions do not enliven hearts and are not effects of the Holy Spirit. Such efforts are love for one's neighbor, self-control, and so on. They are not tools through which God moves hearts to believe, as are the divinely given word and sacraments. Rather... Traditions are customs that have no connection to the heart. 
They perish with the using, and we must not believe that they are necessary for righteousness before God. To the same effect, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But there is no need to cite many testimonies, for they are everywhere clear in the Scriptures, and we have gathered many of them in the latter articles of our Confession. In this controversy, the point to be decided must be repeated, namely, whether human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God. In due course, we will discuss this matter more, more fully. And indeed, that's our, that's our goal today, is to discuss it more fully. Um, Pastor Bakey, in this, this necessity and, and this, and this righteousness, can you explain, like, the repetitive nature here? You're going to see this phrase throughout it, right? This, uh, necessary for righteousness. Just to get to the bare bones, what's the real thing the Lutherans are going after here? Well, as with all of the Augsburg Confession and the Apology likewise, it's a matter of the gospel. Is this the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works, uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ alone? Or do we find our justification in some other way? And so you see that refrain, necessary for righteousness, or uh, elsewhere you find necessary for the unity of the church. And, and whenever the human tradition is discussed, it's always in the context of, is it necessary for Righteousness and the Lutherans answer very clearly no, um, because as they explain in uh, paragraph thirty six, tradition human traditions are external, they they deal with the body, but they do not deal with the heart, for the heart is dealt with by the divinely instituted uh, word and sacraments. Um, and and again, I think that's a a very important distinction that's being made here: the distinction between human traditions and what God Himself has handed over, his word and sacrament, which is necessary for true righteousness before him. Thank you. And so, Pastor Grevy, I mean, this is a Lutheran thing. We're, we're really stressing here, even here in there, in talking about ceremonies and rites, they stress that the Spirit doesn't work through these traditions and rites. The Spirit works through what? The word and the sacraments. Now, we can safely say that all of us here as, as guests and the host of this, of this program, uh, we follow the hymnal. We follow the liturgies of the hymnal. We follow these things. We have Easter on the appointed day for Easter. We follow the church year calendar and so forth. Pastor Grevy, how does that fit with what we just talked about, that you know, our righteousness doesn't come from these things? It is a distinctly different thing, for example, to say that uh, traditions are good, and useful for uh, peace among our neighbors and that they benefit our neighbor. You mentioned uh, Christian discipline earlier in the introduction. Uh, These things are beneficial for Christian discipline and consistency, um, and all of those things are good things, and uh, we want to uphold all of those things. But it's a far different thing to say that those things are, are good for order rather than confusion, peace rather than upheaval and so forth, far different to say that than it is to say that these traditions merit justification, that these traditions uh, obtain righteousness before God. That is a far different thing. And so what we're really, uh, what we're really, how we're really coming at it here in these confessions is to say, um, fine and good, these traditions are fine and good, 
and we should not um, facilitate and bring about um, upheaval and disorder and informality and things like this. But uh, we cannot say, and we do not say, and we will not say, that these human traditions um, are necessary for righteousness before God. It is, it is the, the things that are divinely ordained, uh, that are uh, word and sacraments, that are there for receiving our righteousness in the eyes of God, our justification by grace alone, through the gift of faith alone in Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Grieby. Pastor Bakey. Yeah, I think you can draw a parallel uh, between this and what we find in the formula of Concord, uh, Article 4 on good works, uh, where it's confessed that good works are not necessary for salvation, but that doesn't mean that good works are unnecessary altogether. They are. In, in a similar way, it's, it's not exactly the same, but in a similar way, these traditions are not necessary to be righteous before God, but that doesn't mean they're unnecessary or, or even harmful, uh, as Pastor Grievey said. They're they're very beneficial for many good reasons. And I think the, the added thing to to add into this is, anytime somebody wants to veer off from maybe traditions or or things like that, motivations uh, might be good, might be wonderful. But what's the underlying theology behind the change or underneath the new the new stuff? Um, and that's that's where we run into danger because, of course, in American Christianity, we end up with this uh, with this guy named Charles Gradison Finney, who has uh, muddied the waters of American Christianity to the point where so much error is uh, accepted as just kind of general belief. And part of that error is kind of the revivalist thought that worship should be something that you do for God. And specifically, it should then stir you up as far as it should give you that kind of emotional high and so forth. And that uh, that is uh, not scriptural, and it's uh, not historic either. Uh, but yet it's, of course, very prevalent here, and uh, that's what we have to deal with as uh, confessional Lutherans, as Lutherans, to, that, you know, we have orders and rites and hymns and things like this. Uh, tradition is important to us, not for our salvation, but for other reasons, it is a necessity for other reasons. Peace, discipline, training, uh, all these good things uh, of this life are, are wonderful things that we should try to embrace. So let's look at this. Uh, paragraphs 38 through 40 is what I will cover next. The adversaries say that universal tradition should be observed because they were supposedly handed down by the apostles. What religious men they are. They wish that the ceremonies received from the apostles be kept. Yet they do not wish the apostles' doctrine be kept. They should judge these rites just as the apostles themselves judged them in their writings. For the apostles did not want us to believe that we are justified through such ceremonies, or that such ceremonies are necessary for righteousness before God. The apostles did not want to put such a burden upon consciences. They did not want to place righteousness and sin in the observant of days, food, and the like. Yes, Paul calls such opinions teachings of demons. Therefore, the apostles' will and advice should be taken from their writings. It is not enough to mention their example. The apostles observed certain days, not because this observance was necessary for justification, but in order that the people might know at what time they should gather. They observed also certain other ceremonies and orders of lessons whenever they gathered, the people kept the customs of the fathers from their Jewish festivals and ceremonies, 
As is commonly the case, the apostles adapted to the history of the gospel certain things, although somewhat changed. Among these things were the Passover and Pentecost. The apostles did this so that not only by teaching, but also through these examples they might hand down to posterity the memory of the most important subjects. All right, so there's a number of things in here. Uh, first things first, Pastor Grevy, what's this notion that they're talking about that the uh, these universal traditions, so the ceremonies and the rites themselves, uh, the masses and, and the, the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the coming out of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, what's this idea that they were handed down by the apostles? We don't, we don't have anything like that in the New Testament. What are they talking about? Well, as you were reading that, it reminded me a little bit of the of the claim that they will make uh, in regards to something called apostolic succession. That, namely, you can the gist of that is that you can trace all the way back to Peter and the apostles, uh, the office uh, of the ministry, and ha- find an unbroken strand all the way up to today, and you can trace and you can trace it all the way back, and you can and you can show it. Um, but nobody, uh, you one has to wonder how it is shown. Uh, and again, the same kind of thing. That's a similar thing to what they're talking about here. They're claiming that uh, there are universal traditions that should be observed because they were handed down by the apostles. So they're doing really two things at the same time here. On the one hand, they're claiming that these universal traditions are necessary for righteousness before God. And additionally, they're actually claiming that they're divine. They're claiming that these are not human. These are act, they're claiming that they're, these are not actually human traditions, but that these are divine traditions is what the claim that they're making. Um, but as you mentioned, we we can't find and we don't find uh, really any such thing uh, in the apostolic writings. So we don't find apostolic mandates uh, for these things. And so again, this is where the very important difference comes in, that these traditions are good for order and peace and for love for one's neighbor, uh, but they don't justify, and they don't, so they don't merit the forgiveness of sins, and we don't, uh, we're not righteous before God because of them, on account of them. And that really, and then again, that, so that's the biggest difference here, uh, is that we, we cannot say uh, that these traditions came from the apostles by divine right, not these human ones. That's very good. In fact, as an example, uh, here at Our Savior, we, we teach a confessions class every week. Right now we're going through the small cult articles, and, and we're talking about the papacy and all the different uh, traditions and dogmas that are built up now in the papacy. And you get members of the church who are listening, and they're, they're studying this, and then they, they kind of get this question at times, like, Pastor, how can this be? I mean, there's nothing in the Scripture about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. I always kind of respond to them with something like, there you go, thinking like a Lutheran again. You know, you, you always have to remember that, that for a Roman Catholic, you don't just have Scripture alone. Right. You know, there, there's a whole different source of divine revelation for them. And, and, and that's what they claim, and that's exactly, as you say, that's what we're contending with here, is they're saying that it's a divine revelation outside of Scripture that these ceremonies must be observed to be righteous before God. 
And and <clears throat> so it's a whole different authority issue. Instead of looking to Scripture, we're now looking to uh, what some guy said, or a council, or a pope, or you know some tradition from some written scroll somewhere, and uh, uh, not Scripture. And that's a that's a key distinction. I think is is always out there. And our and our good Lutheran folk just don't quite understand these things because they're just so used to going, okay, show me in the Bible, show me where this is, you know. And this is, of course, what they're getting at when they say, you know, it's best that we, we judge these things from the writings of the apostles. Now, there is a distinction. I don't want to skip it. Uh, so, Pastor Baker, I want to talk to you a little bit about this distinction. It says, you know, they, they wish to keep the ceremonies, but they do not wish the apostles' doctrine to be kept. What, what are they talking about here? Well, this is like what Jesus says to the Pharisees, that they're whitewashed tombs, and inwardly you find rotting bones that uh, they, they may have the, the most beautiful and, and reverent and, and stunning rites, and yet it's, it's an empty shell because the apostolic doctrine is absent. And as we saw in that previous uh, section that you read, it's the apostolic doctrine that is the word which is divinely instituted, that alone uh, enlivens the heart and makes one righteous before God. Uh, without that apostolic doctrine... Which, which is guaranteed by Christ. Uh, you may remember uh, as he speaks to his uh, apostles on the night of his betrayal, he says, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have spoken to you. Uh, that's a guarantee of the apostolic writing. Or uh, for those of us who are on the one-year lectionary, we heard yesterday from uh, Peter's second epistle that no prophecy has its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so without that apostolic writing, which has the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, um, you can have the most beautiful rites in the world, and yet it's it's nothing but dead and empty. And then, and that is a real temptation, just as, as certain innovations in worship will lead the heart to trust uh, something outside of God's Word and the Apostles' teaching, uh, maybe music choices and the emotional feelings that it produces, uh, so also, uh, things that look very traditional and very uh, ceremonial can end up being hollow as well and trusted in just the same as the flesh uh, and causing trouble that way. So um, always on guard against the, the sinful nature because it's always on uh, trying to rip you away from faith in Jesus. So you have here then, it, you know, it, their advice, uh, their will and advice should, should be taken from their writings. That this is why, you know, this is when we confess in the creed, apostolic church, what are we confessing? Are we confessing that the right guys hand, put their hands on the right guys all the way through history? No. We're confessing the church is that which holds to the apostolic teaching. That's the teaching, that, as Pastor Bakey mentioned, that Jesus actually speaks of. Uh, or, or as he prays about in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that I pray not only for them, but I pray for those who will believe through their word. Uh, that, uh, that, of course, Jesus prays for us in that, because we believe through the word of the apostles in the New Testament and so forth. Uh, so, so then it, of course, goes into the section about, you know, why the apostles did things. That it, wasn't it wasn't necessary for justification, but in order that people might know what time they should gather. So, Pastor Grevy, I mean, your church has set times for worship, right? That is correct. Do you change them every other month? No, not at all. That would cause great confusion uh, among uh, Christ's sheep. Uh, right, but but yeah. I mean, the the accusation would be, of course, right. is you're just being too traditional and stuffy. Right, 
Right. Right. I mean, I mean, it, it's an yeah. absurd example, but it kind of proves the point that you hear oftentimes against, like, oh, it's just the boring liturgy again. Uh, oh, you you guys just you know you follow the lectionary. It doesn't really get into people's lives. Right. Um, I, for one, yeah. I, I would argue that you know if God's word is out there, the Holy Spirit is bringing that into people's lives. So, um, right. And yeah. I always, you know, I, I I like to think about I think about the, when you bring up the liturgy. Um, sometimes what is so oftentimes forgotten is that there is freedom built into the liturgy already. And um, I it just I'm always I guess I'm. I guess I may be a little bit, maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I'm still, I still find myself surprised when, uh, when many will just, you know, play cut-and-paste games with the liturgy or they just omit things altogether, uh, as if that doesn't have an adverse effect on Christ's people and cause confusion. It would be just like, you know, it would be a similar thing to uh, what you mentioned, you know, if we... We changed our worship times uh, every other month, uh, or, or whatever. Or and uh, boy, that would that would that would certainly create some upheaval, and people would be, "What's going on? I don't know. I don't know when church is anymore." And so we don't want that. Uh, we want that consistency uh, and that order, uh, peace and tranquility among. Uh, the brethren here on earth and, and among us in the church, and uh, and certainly that fits in with you know this kind of the the doctrine and the practice really do go together. Uh, we don't drive a wedge between the two of them because if we do so, then we've really then we we're really saying that we can practice whatever we want because we have freedom, and so that's an abuse of freedom, and we certainly don't want that either. Excellent. <clears throat> I mean, with, with regards to this, I mean, I, I had a wise old pastor tell me once about, you know, in the, in the care of souls, that is the, the divine task given to pastors, uh, using God's word and sacraments, you know, that, that this repetition, uh, it, it obviously isn't, isn't salvific, but it sure does train them. And especially when you go and visit people on their deathbeds, you see the fruit of that training. Uh, especially when you go visit people in like the memory care facilities where you know you see dementia and Alzheimer patients and so forth, yeah, you see the training, you you see the the, <clears throat> the repetition and how that has worked, and how they have God's word readily in their minds and on their mouths because they've just week in and week out used it, heard it, and spoken it, sung it, whatever it would be. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just you know it's uncanny that that people that you run into who who don't remember who you are as their pastor even after years because their their mind is down, that they, uh, that they just you know they can't remember anything but why they know how to pray the Lord's prayer. I've had that very and, and, thing and they happen. May, and they before. may say Absolutely. the they may say the words of institution with you. You know, right, right. all the things that are still sitting in that mind that God has preserved in there to help sustain them and their faith. And Jesus and and repetition was the tool sometimes that was used to do that, to catechize them over and over again. We're coming up on a hard break, but we'll take up this topic when we get back after the break. Uh, you are listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO AM Radio, the Messenger of the Good News. Uh, we will be back, continuing to talk about rites, ceremonies, and your salvation.
I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on Lutheran piety, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about faithful and frequent reception of the Eucharist. We'll discuss the vocation of teacher with Dr. Thomas Korchak, and we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Paul's first missionary journey. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. When we assume something bad is about to happen, we often say, the handwriting is on the wall. It's a popular idiom. In this case, from the Bible. In Daniel 5, when King Belshazzar sees a man's handwriting on the palace wall, verse 6 says, Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled. Another popular idiom in Daniel 2.33 refers to feet of clay. And the popular phrase, a little birdie told me, may have come from Ecclesiastes 10.20. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. Or wolves in sheep's clothing from Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Engage with the Bible in its impact in every sphere. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on KFUA AM Radio, the messenger of the good news. Uh, I am your host this week, Pastor Joshua Shear, coming to you from Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I'm a senior pastor at Our Savior Lutheran Church. I'm joined today by uh, my associate pastor here, Pastor Marcus Bakey, as well as Pastor Mike Grevy of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois. I will say we are a call-in show, so if anyone's interested in calling in to ask a question or something like that, needs clarification, 314-821-0850, or if you're outside of the St. Louis metro area, 800-730-2727, and we will hopefully address your concerns on air. All right, we left off talking about how this... Uh, 
the ceremonies and the repetition stuff isn't necessary for salvation, but it's beneficial for, for people. It's necessary to help them, and it's good for training and discipline and so forth. And we were talking especially about end-of-life issues. Uh, but, of course, uh, this hold, this pattern holds true all the way to, uh, to uh, the other end of life. Uh, the other the other end of that spectrum. So, Pastor Bakey, uh, I know here at Our Savior, you, you handle a lot of that. Right, yeah. Uh, it's remarkable how the liturgy uh, serves to instruct old and young, and as you mentioned, those in the memory care unit who uh, whose lips are open to sing God's praise by recalling the liturgy. Uh, also for our, our young children, even down to one, two, three years old, how do they learn to give praise and glory to God uh, through the glory and excelsis and the sanctus. How do they learn to confess Jesus Christ through the creed? And he is uh, Lord, Son of God, crucified, died, and risen again. How do they learn to pray from the Lord's Prayer, from the from the collect of the day, from the prayer of the church? Uh, the, the repetition of the liturgy, the tradition, the handing over uh, benefits uh, the next generation as it teaches them to uh, confess the faith rightly. So, so there's something that's almost like anti-cultural here, especially in America, where every generation has to have their own identity and they have to have their own label. I, I think I'm an Xer, uh, you know, not one of those millennials or whatever they want to call the next one. And we all have to have our labels and generalizations and so forth, and, and we have to be different than the other generation. But of course, in the church, the, the culture of the church. Uh, we use this word Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic, to reference this universality that the church goes through time across, uh, across the whole globe, and that there's, a, there's something greater to it than just me, myself, and my generation, um, which is great because it saves me from me, myself, and my wicked generation. Uh, this, is, this is kind of referenced here in this hand-down nature of, of this section. We're talking about handing down. Uh, Pastor Grevy, you know, can we speak a little bit more about this idea, of this concept of handing down and its benefit upon the church and then the home? I mean, families have traditions. Um, and then, then not, even, not only that, but th- what's the benefit even out into the state, into our culture around us? Uh, could you repeat that last part that you just said? I didn't quite catch that. The, uh, yeah, the, how's this concept of handing things down? How's it a, a benefit and blessing to the church, uh, to the people of the church, obviously, to homes? And then even as that works out, how how does it work towards the, the state, the culture that's around us? Right. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's this kind of, you know, what comes to mind, <clears throat> first off, is uh, the place in um, Deuteronomy where the Lord talks about um, handing down these teachings, teaching these things to your children and to your children's children, and so forth, and that passing on. Now, of course, the Lord there is talking about the passing on of these divine things, these divine teachings, passing on my word. Pass it on to your children, their children pass it on to their children, and so forth, and this makes its way from generation to generation to generation, and so forth. Um, in regards to you know your, your question about uh, when we're talking about traditions here, um, you know, uh, several things come to mind. I mean, when we, in the Church, you know, uh, Pastor Bakey brought up, uh, as one example, he brought up the one-year lectionary. Uh, the one-year lectionary, of course, obviously from the title, repeats itself every year. And the, so you have the same, for example, the same Gospels 
every single church here, year after year after year after year. And those uh, those scripture readings, uh, whether it's the gospel, epistle, or Old Testament, when people hear those repeatedly, year after year after year, they cannot help but um, become part of the person, uh, just part of who we are as Christians. And again, the, the you know the lectionary is something where there is freedom in, of course. So if somebody wants to free text on a particular Sunday of the church here. They can do that, but a pastor should always be asking himself questions. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this just because I want to preach on something else? In other words, have I, have I gotten, have I become bored? Which, of course, is a problem. Uh, so it always, again, if anything is going to be changed with a tradition, it ought to be beneficial to the neighbor. So that's who we ought to be thinking about first and foremost. So when you talk about this consistency in traditions, yes, these things in the church are important. In uh, the estate of the family, they're important. Um, you know, to uh, spend time in the Word of God and prayer uh, in, the, in the home uh, is important during our week. Uh, again, that's, you know, we, and again, what particular form that takes, there's freedom in. Um, you know, if you, there's, there's many, there's much freedom in the one's devotional life in terms of how long you do it for, do you do it for 10 minutes or do you do it for 20? There's nothing set in stone for that, uh, but we should be doing it and uh, right. try to be consistent on it and, and strive to be consistent on it when we stumble. Well, Repent, and that's the, start up again, pick up where you left off, uh, get going again. And uh, so in the but state... Just one, just one second. Oh, yeah. As you, as you talk about that, I mean, that's the danger in the freedom you have in devotions. Yes. Is that the freedom can itself become your flesh's excuse to, to change it up and to not do it. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and, and this is why they extol discipline in, in the confessions as a, as a good thing for this life. Uh, right for our exactly. bodies, I mean, and it's there's... also a fruit of the spirit. Uh, this is the the last fruit of the spirit that I believe Paul uh, lists in the scripture is self control. Yes, um, you know, and that's uh, that fits in with uh, with exactly what you're saying as well. Um, and so, even taking that to the state, then as well, you know, every government, regardless of who they are, is supposed to promote, um, is in, is in a sense supposed to promote the Church. That is to say, they are, they are to promote the worship of God, and uh, to do that in such a way that the Church uh, exists, that the Church exists in peace on earth. Uh, and so they are to do that. They don't, uh, they may not have to... Um, endorse any particular one religion, but they should be first and foremost focusing on what is the what does the church need from the government? And they really ought to be there. I mean, there's plenty of uh, things in the Bible in this regards, uh, in terms of dwelling in peace, uh, living in peace on earth. And, um, you know, we've got uh, a lot of things going on in regards to the question of religious liberty now, but the ultimate point is, you know, the first commandment 
is the first commandment for a reason, and it's above all things. You shall have no other gods. And the government really should be promoting that uh, for the sake of the Church. Uh, again, they don't, there, is a, there, there are certainly distinctions here among these uh, realms. Certainly. The kingdom certainly. of the Church and the kingdom of the state. But yep. uh, the state is not, should not, the government, no government should be doing things that are directly against the church. Correct. Yep. And that's, I mean, that's from what God's word says, that the government is God's servant. Um, so it uh, creates peace and order so that the church and the gospel specifically can go out amongst the people. Right. All right, let's let's go on here. I'm going to read paragraphs 41 through 44. So it's a little longer stretch here, but it's all kind of related. So... Um, bear with me. But if these things were handed down as necessary for justification, why afterward did the bishops change many things in these ver in very matters? If they were matters of divine right, it was not lawful to change them by human authority. Before the Synod of Nicaea, some observed <clears throat> Easter at one time and others observed it at another time. Neither did this lack of uniformity harm faith. Afterward, the plan was adopted by which our Passover, or Easter, did not fall at the same time as that of the Jewish Passover. The apostles had commanded the churches to observe the Passover with the brethren who had been converted from Judaism. Therefore, after the Synod of Nicaea, certain nations held firmly to the custom of observing the Jewish time. The apostles, by this decree did not wish to put a demand upon the churches, as the words of the decree testify. For it asks no one to be troubled, even though his brothers and sisters in observing Easter do not change the time correctly. The words of the decree are found in Epiphan Epiphanius. Do not calculate, but celebrate it whenever your brethren of the circumcision do. Celebrate it at the same time with them, and even though they may have erred, let not this be a care to you. Epiphanius writes that these are the words presented in a decree about Easter. The wise reader can easily conclude from the decree that the apostles wished to free the people from the foolish opinion of a fixed time, to help them from being troubled if a mistake should be made in setting the date. However, some in the East who followed the teaching of audience argued that because of this decree of the apostles, the Passover should be observed with the Jews. In refuting them, Epiphanius praises and decrees that, and says that it contains nothing that departs from the faith or rule of the church. He blames the audience because they do not correctly understand the expression. Epiphanius interprets it in the sense in which we interpret it, because the apostles thought it unimportant what time the Passover should be observed. Nevertheless, for harmony's sake, and because prominent brothers and sisters had been converted from the Jews who observed their custom, the adversaries wished to rest to wish the rest to follow their example. They wisely warned the reader neither to remove the freedom of the gospel nor to burden consciences. The apostles thought the consciences should not be troubled, even though there should be an error in setting the date. All right, so here we have a great example from history of where this principle holds true, uh, that these are not matters of salvation, they are matters of freedom, but yet there is for the sake of harmony, there is for the sake of order. We have set some customs and so forth, but even then when others would disagree with the customs, uh, there are cases then we would just kind of uh, put up with their erring custom or their erring, erring thoughts about it. Um, 
So, Pastor Bakey, can you tell me a little bit more about this Epiphanius-type situation and, and how it applies? Yeah, it, it's it's really a, a great uh, a move here on the part of the confessors um, in that they, they refer back to the papists' own um, changing of a human tradition, and that is the tradition of the date of Easter. Uh, as you read there in uh, paragraph 41, if... Um, these things are necessary for justification, and again, there's that uh, that specific statement for justification. How can the bishops change these things? How can uh, they not live up to their own standard? And and they refer to this matter of um, of Epiphanius and the date of Easter. And I'm not certain of this, but I, I think that in a way they're almost conceding uh, something to the papists, namely. All right, let's say that the apostles set the date of Easter to coincide with the Passover. Uh, and that's based on uh, something they mentioned in the Confutation uh, by Augustine, also this letter from Epiphanius, that, that tradition held that the apostles set the custom of observing Easter with the Passover. And, and Lutherans say, all right, even if that's the case, you can see that your own history shows that it was not unbreakable. It was not set in stone and could not be changed lest one perish. Uh, for, as Epiphanius writes, uh, celebrate it at the same time with your brethren. And don't be bothered if they've made a mistake. In other words, uh, let love cover this. And this is, I think, a very good uh, admonition for us as well as we consider human rights and ordinances and human traditions. Uh, love, and love for the neighbor governs these traditions. Uh, and and if one seems better to another, uh, so long as it does not contradict the gospel, let love govern how one holds these traditions. All right. So so if we let love do this, uh, Pastor Grieve, how do we do with we deal with, deal with the folks who want to just jettison all the traditions? Uh, is love saying okay? Let them do whatever they want to do. Right. Well. Uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, I mean, love does have some order to it as well, because again, if we are, we should have hopefully the presupposition that love is going to benefit our neighbor. After all, this is what Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the assumption, we, we hopefully are making the assumption there and the connection that love actually should benefit our neighbor and not cause confusion, disorder, upheaval, and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, that kind of thing. So uh, we're fine with saying, for example, uh, let's, let's just, uh, for, for the sake of argument, say that something happened, uh, something came up that precluded one of our congregations from celebrating Easter this spring on Sunday, April first, uh, something, whatever it is. Uh, would we be? Would we have the freedom to to say, oh, you know, okay, we could something happened that precluded us from doing it on Sunday, April first. Let's do it Monday, April second. Uh, and the answer would be no. We could do that. Uh, we could do that uh, without. Um, uh, fearing that we're going to perish because of, of breaking the tradition of having it on Sunday. 
Um, but we should not, on the other side of that coin, uh, use our freedom, uh, use our liberty uh, as a cloak for doing whatever seems right in our own eyes and say, well, let's just, you know, for something different, let's do Easter on Monday, April 2nd this year. We should not, we should not do that either. Right. Or, or, or for uh, other silly reasons like, well, well, you know, Easter's a, a family day, and so let's just put Easter church aside um, because, you know, families are important, and so uh, we won't have worship that day. Uh, you know, there all of a sudden now we're, we're trampling other commandments, uh, the third commandment in particular, uh, which would right. trump the fourth commandment, which is the family commandment. So, And I think, uh, uh, as you mentioned that, uh, sadly, that's actually, that's actually been done, uh, you know, by some some congregations that don't observe worship services on Christmas Day. I think Correct. that's a, I think that's a, I think that really goes against the freedom that we have. Uh, because well, it goes against the very nature of the word Christmas. So, right, uh, exactly. Yeah, it goes against, because that is, that is the day that has been appointed. Uh, so again, if something came up that precluded us from doing it on, the, on that day, of course, we would be open to saying, okay, let's move it to the next day. Uh, but to simply say something along the lines of, well, you know, we had one on Christmas Eve, and a lot of people are traveling around the holiday season, so let's just uh, omit it uh, right. from the calendar is, is not, not within the realm of our... Uh, it's not within the realm of Christian freedom. Well, or, or coming up here, we to celebrate the secular feast of the Super Bowl. <laughs> and uh, how many things will go on there as well? So, so this freedom is is always this this Christian freedom is always disciplined by Christian love, right? And this love is is not selfish, and it's also love. True love doesn't come from bad theology. <clears throat> so, so we want to be known as the family friendly church, and so we're going to cancel church. That comes. I mean, they might call that loving, but but that's a love that's breaking commandments. So that's not real love. Okay, right. right. So, so we just have to keep this in mind. Uh, there's always this stuff, but yet, you know, the proper definition of love. How many times can we see that in, in today's day and age as a problem? Uh, let's let's move into paragraphs 45 and 46, and we'll wrap up Article 7 here in the Apology. Uh, many things like this can be collected from the historical accounts. In them, it appears that a lack of uniformity in human observances does not harm the unity of faith. What need is there of discussion? The adversaries do not at all understand what the righteousness of faith is, what Christ's kingdom is. That is clear when they judge that uniformity of observances in food, days, clothing, and the like, which do not have God's command, is necessary. Look at these religious men, our adversaries. They require uniform human observances for the unity of the church. They do this even though they themselves have changed Christ's ordinance in the use of the supper which certainly was a universal ordinance before. If universal ordinances are so necessary, why do they themselves change the ordinance of Christ's Supper, which is not human, but divine? We will have to speak about this entire controversy a little later. All right, and they will indeed when they get to the Supper. Um, so, so here we have it. Uh, lack of uniformity in human observances does not harm the unity of faith. That They're asserting that that's true. 
Okay, so they're, they're showing this error of the Roman Catholic Church because, of course, they're saying unity of faith, that is, righteousness of faith for everybody together, is, is dependent upon human observances, which, of course, and, and uniform human observances, which, of course, is what the Lutherans are constantly going after and saying, no, no, this is damaging the gospel. But here we find the real reason. Uh, <laughs> they don't understand the righteousness of faith. Um, again, we're going back to Augsburg 4, where we're trying to teach the Roman Catholics the pure gospel one more time, which, of course, gets rejected, uh, condemned even in the Council of Trent. Um, that, that they don't understand this, so why is it any surprise that they wouldn't understand this other stuff? Now, Pastor Bakey, they do talk in, in particular about one specific thing when they're, when they're drawing this out, and they talk about the use of the supper. And I know we'll cover it later, but for the sake of the listeners now, let's, let's just talk a little bit about how, what they're talking about. They've changed Christ's ordinance in the use of the supper. Yeah, this is a, a reference to the, the papist sacrifice of the Mass, which took Christ's own institution of the Lord's Supper, his body and blood, given and shed for Christians to eat and to drink, as we say in the um, in the small catechism, and, and changed it, abused it, twisted it, uh, so that you had private Masses in which a priest would stand on his own at an altar offering this, quote-unquote, unbloody sacrifice, uh, without any Christians there to eat or to drink. You would also have occasions in which, yeah, there may be Christians eating and yet not drinking, uh, violating Christ's own institution that Christians should drink of the cup, all of you. Uh, and so, again, this is this is written brilliantly in that it shows how the papists have been so concerned about maintaining the human ordinances, and yet have no qualms whatsoever about trampling over divine institutions. Uh, you, you find this also in the Augsburg Confession when it speaks about works of the law, that the papists are so concerned about keeping their own human tradition, their own uh, human works, that the law itself, the law of God, the commandments, is ignored and set aside. Exactly. And so, so there's just there's just a, a I don't know if you would call it lack of fear of God, but that that was that would be what would happen if you've lost the gospel, you've you've lost true faith in God, you lose then true fear of God, and you have no problem elevating the human to the divine. Uh, Pastor Grevy, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, what are you thinking about this last paragraph with the historical accounts, uniformity, unity of the faith? Well, it comes around uh, beautifully here by the confessors. I mean, first of all, you you, you know, we went from at the beginning the <clears throat> the uh, human traditions not necessary for having righteousness before God, and the claim that there was apostolic mandate for these traditions. So they turned. So the adversaries were turning the human into the divine, really. And now here we go with really, um, in the supper, uh, turning the divine into the human work in the sacrifice of the Mass. And so what you, what you have here is, uh, it, I can't help but see a, a parallel here uh, between the, the, the adversary's claim that love justifies us uh, before God, 
and, and align that with them saying that these human traditions justify us before God, and keeping them intact justifies us before God. And then taking what actually is the love of Christ in the New Testament of his body and blood, and changing that uh, into something that it's not. Uh, and so the, toward the end of this, this article, uh, 7, the confessors bring it around really full circle, and um, are really getting to the core of the issue again, which is, you know, it really does come back to what justifies us before God, and who is it who justifies us? It is God who justifies, as the Apostle Paul says in very plain language. Which is the whole, uh, no. re- which is the whole reason the confessions are being written is is to con- to confess against this idea that we are redeemed by works of ourself. Uh, that instead yeah. instead of uh, works righteousness, that the scriptures teach something completely different, uh, something of Christ's righteousness, which is given to people when they believe in Him. And so, uh, this is again the primary thing for Lutherans. Uh, we keep going back to this months and months and months on this program, and we kept just going back to this fact that Lutherans are all about the gospel, that that you would know the forgiveness of your sins has been earned by Christ Jesus, and it is delivered to you by him. You receive it by grace through faith in him. So go to church this Sunday. Uh, it's It's not an option to go to church. You should. It's good for you. God commands it. He promises to work in you through his word and sacraments this Sunday. Enjoy the old rites, because they're there for your discipline and for your peace and harmony amongst us as a church. These are good things for us. Uh, God be praised for keeping them amongst us as well. So you've been listening to Concord Matters here on KFUAM Radio. Uh, I'm this week's host, Pastor Shear. Uh, wishing you all blessings, and uh, we'll catch you back up with you next time. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu.